18 to 24 year olds make up almost 10% of the American population, but in the 2018 midterm elections, they made up only 6% of voters. Our generation wants progressive change, but only we can make it happen. We are the future. We are the next generation of voters. I am Daniel Wilk, and this is the Next Generation Politics Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Next Generation Politics Podcast. I'm Daniel Wilk. And I'm Cindy Gift. We are from the Writing and Direction Departments, respectively. Today, we will discuss mail-in ballots, election tampering, the John Lewis Memorial, the Reagan Foundation, and some COVID updates. We are super excited to be hosting today. So for mail-in voting and election tampering, President Trump has expressed his views against mail-in voting, but his reasons for the opposition are questionable. Trump first stated that ballots would be stolen out of mailboxes, although there is very little evidence to support this claim. It is entirely absurd. On June 20, 22nd, the president tweeted in all caps, rigged 2020 election, millions of mail-in ballots will be printed by foreign countries and others. It will be the scandal of our times. This claim had been previously made by Attorney, by Attorney General William Barr, but was quickly shut down by election officials who said that this claim was false and preposterous. Mail-in ballots are not a new idea, far from it. On average, one in four Americans cast their vote by mail. Since the year 2000, more than 250 million votes have been cast via mail ballots, according to the Vote at Home Institute. And in 2018, more than 31 million Americans cast their ballots by mail, about 25.8% of election participants. I recently volunteered for a local congressional candidate and our election was held almost entirely by mail. Despite how many people cast their votes through the mail, voter fraud remains extremely low. Trump also tweeted, mail-in voting will lead to the most corrupt election in in USA history. Results from a New York Times poll show that almost 90% of Biden supporters approve of voting by mail. The president has accused Democrats of rigging the election, and many believe that these comments are damaging to democracy. Governor Andrew Cuomo stated that they're going to lose the election, and I think they're going to claim fraud when asked his opinion on Trump's claims. So now the Lewis Memorial. On July 26, John Lewis's body was carried across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. He was met on the other side of the bridge with family members and Alabama state troopers. The Georgian Democrat achieved the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, for he was the first black lawmaker to line the U.S. Capitol. And arriving at the U.S. Capitol, Vice President Mike Pence paid his respects to John Lewis there. However, Trump publicly said that he will not be paying his respects, and that is most likely because of the tension between the two. Lewis refused to attend Trump's presidential inauguration in protest to election, and in retaliation, of course, Trump attacked Lewis on Twitter. All right, so for the Reagan Foundation, I really don't like Ronald Reagan, but let's talk about this. On Saturday, July 25th, it was revealed to the Washington Post that the Reagan Foundation had requested that Trump's re-election campaign and the RNC, Republican National Committee, stop using Ronald Reagan's image to fundraise for Trump. This came after an email from the RNC encouraging donations by offering new Trump-Reagan commemorative coin sets. The request definitely came as a surprise, as stated by RNC Communications Director Michael Lorenz in an emailed statement to the Post. The Reagan Foundation has previously welcomed and hosted members of the Trump family for some of the Foundation's fundraising events. This fact 
the cause some to go so far as to criticize their request of the RNC and Trump campaign, which is weird because Reagan is some sort of de deity among conservatives. Through, though the exact reasoning for the Reagan Foundation's request is yet to be revealed, the foundation holds sole rights over the use of uh, President Ronald Reagan and former First Lady Nancy Reagan's names and images. This means that the foundation does, uh, does have the right to stop groups from using their images for political or commercial gain. Staying true to himself, President Trump responded to the foundation's request in a tweet. On July 26th, he tweeted, so the Washington Post is running the Reagan Foundation, a jab at the publisher and CEO of the Washington Post, Frederick, Frederick J. Ryan Jr., who also chairs the Reagan Foundation. So this is a little bit interesting and we could see in the future if some conservatives will continue to try to distance themselves from Trump. All right, now for some COVID updates. So the world's largest COVID vaccine trial is entering its final phase and interjecting over 30,000 Americans, sorry, injecting over 30,000 Americans for the true test. As a control, half of the participants will unknowingly be giving a placebo. The vaccine was developed by Moderna Inc., a Cambridge, Massachusetts-based biotech company in the National Institute of Health. And it's officially named mRNA-1273, which I thought was one of Elon Musk's kids, but it's just the name of the vaccine. The NIH director says that their goal is to have a safe and effective vaccine distributed by the end of 2020, but they do admit that that's a stretch, and I think that's a stretch too. The trial's immediate goal is to determine how safe the vaccine is and if it can prevent the symptoms after two doses or altogether prevent infection from COVID as a whole. Volunteers will be giving a swab and blood samples at the initial screening as well as other points for the next two years or at any time they suspect that they are infected or ill. Now, who in the Trump administration has COVID this time. It is now the security advisor Robert O'Brien, which is now the highest ranking of the Trump administration to test positive. He reported mild symptoms and claims to be self-isolating. 17 members of the Miami Marlins baseball team have also tested positive. They have, they have postponed the Marlins season indefinitely, but did not put any further limitations on the rest of the season. Now, pool testing. Pool testing is essentially what it sounds like. Labs would mix together a portion of each sample of a group of let's say like five people. One test kit is used for those five. If the result is negative, the whole group is negative. If the results are positive, what remains of each person's sample from that group is tested individually to find out who is infected. This would decrease the number of testing kits needed by about 16 60%. Pool testing has been around since the 1940s, but hasn't been used for COVID due to the rate of infections that were faced. Most groups would have most likely had to retest anyway, so might have been useless at first. But in places like New York, where uh, they were running low on testing kits and it was a highly dense populated area with lots of people testing positive for corona, uh, pool testing possibly would have been really beneficial at the start of the pandemic. All right, so how to get involved, how to do more. For some more information about mail-in voting and fraud, read the article, How Does Vote by Mail Work and Does It, Decre Does it Increase Election Fraud in Brookings? You can also sign a petition to rename the Pettus Bridge to the Lewis Bridge. Civil rights protesters, which included John Lewis, demonstrated on that bridge in 1965, and renaming it in Lewis's honor is a beautiful way to celebrate his life and legacy. And also, Lewis wrote an essay shortly before he died that has been published a few hours ago. 
in the New York Times, and I highly recommend reading it. It's a beautiful piece. Now, Ari Cohn, our producer, is hosting an interview with Dr. David Fishman. He is a professor of epidemiology at the University of Toronto. He will discuss the reopening of schools and rapid COVID testing. Hi, David. Thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time, um, and we're so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I guess we'll start off. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your research and uh, also briefly explaining how um, the work that you've done has can influence school reopenings and businesses um, in light of COVID-19? Yeah, so, well, so I'm an epidemiologist. That, that's um, a person who studies uh, patterns of disease and populations. I came to epidemiology from medicine. My background's as an infectious disease doctor. And a lot of infectious diseases, um, what you see in the hospital is sort of the tip of a much bigger iceberg, particularly for the class of infections we call communicable diseases. Those are diseases that move from person to person to person. And so we have a bit of a toolbox to study and understand those diseases. Some of it's traditional epidemiology, um, and some of it is more modeling because uh, communicable diseases behave like a lot of physical systems that have feedbacks, that have feedback loops where the more, more infections you have, the more infections you get, and the more an epidemic grows, the more it feeds on itself and the more it grows. Then you've got negative feedback loops as well with immunity. So what I'm working on right now is mostly with some colleagues around serological testing. We haven't had a lot of that in Canada. And that's where we try to figure out what the whole iceberg looks like. Our tests and our hospitalizations tell us about the tip of the COVID iceberg. Well, we're trying to understand the rest of the iceberg. And we find that through, you know, we can figure that out through, through blood tests, through serology tests. So that's been very interesting. So one of the challenges with this is, as we were talking about, um, when we talk about opening schools or we talk about um, return to college campuses, um, those are settings that probably or possibly have the potential to amplify transmission in the community. But the people getting the infections mostly should not be getting severely ill, we think. But, um, but the difficulty that that creates for, for us as a population is that none of us stay you know, sealed off from each other inside a Ziploc bag. So if we have amplification of infection in some parts of society, it can percolate through to others. And once it hits uh, folks my age and older and younger folks who have uh, some chronic medical conditions, it can be a very dangerous thing indeed. That's fascinating. And I, I like, I was really interested in how you said it's not, you know, a Ziploc bag. And because I think it's a kind of a common misnomer that, um, we, we will return to school and it's not really, we're not really a risk factor, but because they're, you know, we'll go home, we have our families, we have our teachers and we'll be out in the world and that creates um, more impacts. I mean, that, that obviously um, there's more opportunity to get infected. So that's, it's very interesting that you said that. I think a lot of people are sort of forgetting that that's an important thing to remember. Yeah. Okay, so I guess to our next question, how did you come, so I've heard you've done a lot of uh, work with rapid testing, um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how it might work in a school environment. Well, what we've been doing really since February, March with testing for COVID in our jurisdiction in Ontario has mostly involved what are called nasopharyngeal swabs. And the idea there 
is we're looking for the virus with PCR. We're not growing the virus, but we're looking for bits and pieces of the virus's RNA. And we're getting that RNA out of people's cells, the cells that live in the back of their nasopharynx. And I describe the nasopharynx as it's the part of your body that the milk goes through if someone makes you laugh while you're drinking milk. The turnaround times are also not the best, uh, particularly we've had a couple times throughout North America where testing infrastructures got overwhelmed and, and tests have slowed down. So having a non-invasive accurate test that doesn't involve a brain biopsy, <laughs> literal or figurative, and that, that, that you could potentially really do fast is really appealing. So the idea of saliva testing has come up. And in fact, with professional sports, a lot of what they're doing is saliva-based testing. Um, and saliva tests have had emergency approval in the States. They haven't yet in Canada. But they really are promising in terms of settings like schools, like dormitories, like high-risk workplaces. And there's a pretty good literature on this at this point that suggests that frequent testing, even if the sensitivity is a bit lower. So we think nasopharyngeal swabs right now in Ontario's sensitivity is sitting around 80%. So 80% of the truly infected people have a positive test. It's lower for spit tests. It's down around 70%. But the idea is you counterbalance that because you can do this a lot. Like you can do this three times a week. And by maintaining that situational awareness, you stay away from some of the situations folks have gotten into where you suddenly have a super spreader event. There's some good documentation of this from Japan. They seem to really be driven by younger individuals, individuals with asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic infections. So they don't feel sick going into crowded, closed, close crowded, as the Japanese say, indoor, indoor settings, the three Cs. And that seems to be where these super spreader events come again. It's dorms, it's gyms, it's bars, it's meatpacking plants, it's long-term care, it's hospitals, the three places where the three C's are, are operative. So the idea is if you could test frequently and in a way that people could buy into, because it's a lot easier to spit in a cup, then it's really a game changer because the reason COVID's such a problem is it's sneaky and quiet. And the younger you get, the more likely it is that people are minimally symptomatically infected, and the more likely it is that it's going to kind of explode on you all of a sudden. Does, uh, I mean, as far as you know, would rapid testing paper strip or... PCR-based. Yes, or PCR. Yeah, those are sort of your... Yeah. Uh, would those have, along with social distancing, of course, and safety measures, would they have the potential to actually allow us to reopen schools before a vaccine would be rolled out? Yeah, absolutely. And I think schools are going to reopen. And um, there's a lot we can do to keep schools safer. You know, again, the Japanese three C's closed, close, crowded. Well, classrooms can be closed, close and crowded. But there are ways to get around that. Um, you know, we can we can try to move education outdoors. We can make cl classes less crowded. We can do cohorts and bubbles. So the same teacher and same students stay together. But knowing when you have this thing sort of starting to emerge in a school um, is really helpful. And of course, I should mention masks, which are also an easy win. And it's interesting, we, uh, we've seen in Ontario and Toronto, we, mandatory masking came in um, about two weeks ago in Toronto, and all of a sudden we've got these low case numbers. So the masks may be really important. And the masks and the testing are sort of of a piece. The idea with the masks is you're not protecting yourself with the masks. 
you're protecting those around you from you creating an aerosol plume that potentially hangs in the air and infects a bunch of people in an indoor space. So what we really are focused on both with masks and with potentially rapid high volume testing is finding the people who feel just fine and have no reason to avoid interaction as far as they know, because as far as they know, they're not sick. Very interesting. I actually, um, I don't want to go too far down this path either, but my school um, is doing a hybrid program as well, but they actually have decided ma uh, mandatory masks, well, they will not be mandatory masks. And uh, the parents and a lot of the teachers, there's been a lot of um, uh, people have felt that that's very problematic. So it's interesting to hear yeah. how important that, the, that component is. I mean, to me, I've kind of come along on masks because I thought, uh, you know, I'm a doctor and we're very dogmatic and we've all told each other masks are nonsense and silly. And then at some point you start to realize, hey, wait a minute. We've always been talking about masks to protect me. I'm wearing a mask to protect me. Well, gosh, you know, nobody really argues much about surgeons wearing masks in the OR. That's not to protect the surgeon. That's to protect the patient because respiratory droplets come out of our mouths and noses. And in fact, as the biophysicists have gotten involved, we see that, wow, even kind of a couple layers of cloth over your face, it's not perfect but it dramatically reduces the degree to which you can create aerosols when you cough for talk. I agree with you. I agree with the parents and the, and, and the students who are saying, well, why wouldn't we do this? You know, protect each other. It's such an easy win. Um, okay, so our next question would be, um, do you know of any, or that you're working on any other technologies or protocols that um, are being explored uh, besides vaccines and rapid test, test, testing that uh, could be employed in school reopenings? What we're trying to do is model vaccination so that we can look at when we get vaccines because they're coming fast who goes to the front of the line right because when vaccines come there's not going to be enough for everyone right away so should healthcare workers get it first should teachers get it first should we focus on those who are most likely to die of covid but least likely to have a response to the vaccine should we focus on the under 40s who are most likely to transmit it i i, I don't know what the answer to those questions is but it's going to be a really important question in a couple of months. And, and there's lots of reason to be optimistic about vaccines. There are a bunch of different kinds of vaccines that all seem to work. Historically, fall is when, um, both in 2009 and in 1918, we had pandemic, pandemics that started with a smaller wave in spring or in summer. And we've seen resurgences in the fall in both of those. And in 2009, it's pretty clearly linked to school opening in Canada. And then I guess the, I didn't I didn't send you this one, but if you're okay with answering it, I think sure. a lot of people um, as we're go heading back to school, any words of wisdom, anything you would like to pass on to the youth of North America? In 2022, let's say we have a vaccine. This is we're looking at this through the rearview mirror. Uh, we have a little bit of stuttering COVID in some parts of the globe, and we're trying to snuff it out. How much have we learned and what have we changed? You know, um, SARS coronaviruses are on a list from the WHO from 2015 of viruses that need vaccines. There's about eight other things on that list, none of which we have vaccines for. Have we learned enough from this that we decide to be proactive about public health? Um, this pandemic has a lot of lessons for us about the importance of how we feed ourselves. There are eight or nine billion people, there are eight soon to be nine billion people on the planet. 
It's a lot of mouths to feed. It's a lot of, um, you know, real estate we cover as a species. And because of that, we're starting to sprawl out into wilderness areas, have more contact with animals, use animals for food in ways that perhaps we haven't historically. So we need to figure out food security. We need to figure out poverty. We need to figure out how to live better with wilderness and preserve wilderness areas and not be barging into them and slashing and burning them. And, and I think a lot of the lessons from the pandemic that things can turn all of a sudden and you can have situations that you see coming and you get warned about and you don't listen and then they come and it's terrible. I think a lot of those lessons are also probably applicable to climate change, which hasn't gone away while we've been dealing with the pandemic. One of the nice things about being a professor is that I get to interact with people who are a couple of decades younger than me. And it's for me and you know, at the School of Public Health, it's really encouraging because they're better, it's a better, it's a better generation than mine was. So I think there's reason for hope. This is sort of a formative time in your life and you're, you're all experiencing this thing that, you know, hasn't happened for a hundred years. I, I wonder if it will inspire or inform your generation in terms of your attitude towards how the world does work and how it can work and how it can work better. Well, that would be one good thing to come out of this. That definitely would. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. This has been totally informative and uh, I'm sure that the youth of, of North America agree, will agree. So thank you so much. Go youth of North America. Well, that was very informative. Before we go, I want to thank our producer, Ari Cohn, our PA, Caleb Murphy, our writer, Sam Marks, Sabrina Martinez, Rachel McFlatter, Elise Faith, Owen Carlson, Daniel Willick, Hi. and Audrey Taylor. Our editor, Sarah Villa, and the huge group of supporters that it took to make this podcast possible. We are 95 days from Election Day. I'm Sydney Gift. And I'm Daniel Willick. And this is Next Generation Politics Podcast.